0: A few nights ago, uh, I was flipping through one of our streaming services, trying to find something maybe new to watch, and I came across a, a TV show, a reality show, I would assume, that was titled this, Who the, the Bleep, and bleep is part of the, the the title, I'm not bleeping it out for you, but Who the Bleep Did I Marry? And I thought, well, that looks interesting. And so I clicked to see the synopsis of what was going on, and it's a it's a, a in a sense, a reality documentary series about people who married somebody that they didn't really know. There was another side to that person. I didn't watch any of them, but I can only assume some of them probably married murderers. Uh, Some of them married people that we probably have heard the stories where they have a whole other family, like in another state, and they're they're figuring this out and they're trying to unpack these things in their life. Uh, That happens more often than we might think. The idea of people being something that they're not, or in reality, something that they are. I was thinking through this, and, and one issue that came to mind, because it's always stuck out in my mind, because it's kind of close to home, the, the B-t-K, BTK killer. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the BTK, B-t-K that is very hard to say, BTK killer. Uh, he was a man from Wichita. And he murdered people for a number of years in this area and uh, the Kansas area. Uh, This guy was a normal guy, had a normal family. Served in the Air Force. He was a veteran. He was an electric technician. He was a faithful member of his church. He was a Boy Scout leader. And come to find out, he had had a secret life for years upon years. And I share these things today to share with you just by way of introduction the danger of hypocrisy. The danger of creating a, a duplicitous life where we're one thing in this area of life and before this group of people and then we're a complete other person in another area of our life. This would have been the struggle of Judas Iscariot who was there with Jesus for all of those years and all of those experiences while all the while... He was living a different life, a duplicitous life. Well, today we get into the body of John's letter. And John's first message that he has heard and now proclaims, he sums up in three words. God is light. This is the message that I've heard. This is the message that I'm declaring to you. God is light. Now, what does John intend to communicate by proclaiming that God is light? The full reading is this, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So this concept, uh, this, this contrast of light and darkness, it takes us all the way back to the beginning. Because in the beginning, if we read in Genesis, there was darkness, and God spoke, what were those words? Let there be light, and immediately the darkness dissipates in the presence of light. There's a principle. There's a principle right there that... that that darkness doesn't dispel light. Light dispels darkness. It's important for us to understand those things. All throughout the story of the Bible, we find this concept. In fact, the word light occurs 275 times from cover to cover in the Scriptures, 95 of those we find in the New Testament. I was in a situation just a couple of weeks ago, and I was in a situation of waiting and it was Psalm 27 that came to my mind. And Psalm 27, verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? During the Christmas season, we read this from Isaiah 9 too, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. The light has come. I love this one in Micah 7. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I have failed, though I have fallen, I will stand up. And though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. And then there's John's use of the word light. Uh, 23 times John uses the word light in his gospel. Just last Sunday... We read this in his opening. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man that was sent from God whose name was John, and he came to bear witness, to bear witness about the light. That he might believe through him, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Then in chapter 3, as he's talking to Nicodemus, Jesus makes this statement, John three nineteen. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And how about these statements from Jesus himself in John 8, 12? Again, Jesus spoke these things saying, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He repeats something similar in John twelve forty six. Last week, we considered this, that Jesus was the word of life. That is this physical representation of God's person. This week, at least from the collection of verses that we've just worked through, it should be clear to us that Jesus is the light of God that is manifest in this world of darkness. And so the question then is, what does John intend to communicate by referring to God as light? What does light represent? And one way we can understand light is light is life. Without light, there can be no life. In our bedroom, there is a small table that sits next to our sliding glass door, and that table is full of plants. And it's not because I like plants, it's because my wife loves plants. Uh, that those are there. And they're there in the winter, usually in the spring and in the summer. They're outside, front porch, back porch, whatever. But in the winter, they become my roommates uh, because it's cold. But why are they there by the sliding door? Because they need light. Without the light, they could not live. Light represents life. Darkness represents death. This is the connection that John makes in that fourth verse of his gospel when he says Jesus was the life and this life was the light of men another way of understanding light is this as a virtue a virtue as something that represents morality in this way light represents righteousness and holiness and purity On the other hand, darkness would represent evil and sin and wickedness. And this is what John is getting at in chapter 3, those verses that we read a moment ago. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Their deeds were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to it. They don't want purity. They don't want morality. They want their sin and wickedness. And so to say that God is light is to express His holiness. To say that God is light is to express His purity. To say that God is light is to express His His righteousness. It is to say that He is the, the very standard of morality and rightness. He is perfection. There's nothing about Him that needs changed. John goes on to say that there's no darkness in Him and to emphasize that point, he actually uses a double negative here. So He says there's no darkness, none, in him. Like what one author said, he said that's not good English, but it's good theology. No darkness at all. And while this is primarily a spiritual metaphor, th- th- there is a physical aspect of the holiness of God that we see present itself at points in the scripture. After seeing that, that portion of the the holiness and the glory and the majesty of God on that holy mountain, what happened to Moses' face? It It was beaming. We don't know what that looked like, but it was scary enough that they had to put a veil over it because the people were like, we can't even look at you. What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration with John and James and Peter as Jesus presents himself in his glorified fashion? They fall down as dead. John repeats the same at the beginning of the book of Revelation. These physical manifestations as as we see them in Scripture. These responses to the the holiness and the the, the light of God. And so John's message begins here in verse 5 with the holiness of God. In order for the remaining truths to make sense, we have to understand this to be the first and greatest truth that John presents in in his letter. God is light. One more point about his holiness as we think about this light. I believe this quality, this attribute, this characteristic of God to be the supreme quality and attribute and characteristic of God. As we think about God, we can think about him in a number of ways. We can think about him being as merciful, compassionate. We can think about him being omnipotent, a lot of times people think about the love of God, this is the supreme character, quality of God. I would argue it is his holiness. Is, is he a loving God? Absolutely, but his love is dictated by his perfection. His love is a holy love. One, one way we can look at this in Scripture is, I've shared this before, when, when a word is meant to be emphasized in God's word especially in the Hebrew language it's just simply repeated so as you're reading you see the word duplicated and so give you the classic example of this is in Genesis when it says on the day you eat the fruit of the tree you will we understand it in our English language you will surely die in the Hebrew it says you will die die and the reader would go oh that's that's serious we just add the word surely in front of it to make the point so when a word is duplicated, it is emphasized. When Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter six, and those seraphim are flying around, covering themselves so they don't even, even get a glimpse of the glory of God, what are they saying? Holy, holy, a third time, holy. That mantra is being repeated right now. In the throne. John says, That's what my experience was when I was there, seeing these things that will happen in the future. They're crying, Holy, Holy, Holy. Emphasizing what? The holiness of God. The holiness of God. So the question before us today is then, How will we respond to this message from John? How will we respond to this God of light, holiness? John has lived a long time. We've made the point he's at the latter stages of his life, probably in his 80s. And he has noted for decades now people's response to this message of God being light. He's noted how they have have twisted this and how they have abused this, false teachers have come in and mixed up people's thinking on this. And so he wants to offer a clear understanding and offer clear instruction to a follower of Jesus. And so he lays out five if we say statements. He knows what people say. He's heard them say it. If we say this, if we say that. And so the the, the first two if we say's create a contrast. The second two if we say's create another contrast. And the last one stands alone and I've reworded this to just simply ask three questions of us today as we think about God being light. And the first question would be this, will we walk in darkness or will we walk in the light? Verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, John argues that we can say that we have fellowship with God, but if we walk in darkness, we're not practicing the truth. To say that we have fellowship with God is to profess a faith in Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection. To say that we have fellowship with God is to say that we are born again. It is to say that when Christ died, that that our old man died and was buried with Him and we were raised to a new life with Him. That's what we're saying when we say we have fellowship with God. But what happens when somebody professes faith in Jesus and professes fellowship with God, yet they continue to walk in darkness? To walk here is an idiom. It's just describing the way we live our lives. If I profess faith in Christ and I claim to have fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the saints, meaning I I claim to be in partnership with the Father, but the way I live my life does not reflect the light of God. I'm doing my thing, and God, you can just simply do your thing. Then John says, Josh, you're a liar. The the truth is not in you. You're not living according to what is true. In in chapter 2 and verse 11, John writes this. He says, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and he walks in the darkness. And he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so I can can say, I can come in here and I can sing about the love of God and and my love for God. John says, if you hate your brother, it's all a lie. You're walking in the darkness. That's a scary and sobering truth. John isn't done. He contrasts this in verse 7, and he says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. To to walk in the light is to live a life that reflects the holiness of God. Uh, To to walk in the light is to live as Jesus. He is the light. He said, I am am the light of the world. It is to live as Jesus lived here on earth. And so, to contrast the darkness of, of hating my brother, Jesus says, you have to love your enemy. This is what walking in the light looks like. You have to live according to the the spiritual principles and the spiritual power of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control and gentleness. This is the light. This is walking in the light. And when we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Genuine fellowship is a direct consequence of walking in the light. This is why so much of what we call fellowship in Christian and church circles is so superficial. Because people aren't really walking in the light. We're lurking in the darkness and we'll poke our heads out every once in a while. There's not real genuine fellowship and relation. There's not honesty. And so genuine fellowship is a consequence of walking in the light, but John mentions another consequence. A glorious consequence. He says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus is a reference to the death of Jesus on the cross. On the cross, Jesus becomes our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him as our substitute. Jesus is punished for our acts of darkness. He, he takes those on Himself on the cross. And because of Jesus we are forgiven. But Not only forgiven, John, John uses a, a different word and maybe we could even consider it a better word. We are cleansed. Our sins are erased. Isaiah 1.18 says this, Come now, the Lord speaking to his people, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. Or that new covenant promise in, in Jeremiah that says this, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And there's the psalmist who rejoices that our sins are, are it's as if they're buried into the depths of the sea where nobody can go. They're removed as far as the east is from the west. This is the beauty of our salvation. This is the good news that we celebrate. We'll celebrate it all the more next week as we consider Jesus our advocate in atonement. In the first two verses of chapter two, but this is what Peter is writing about when he says, "You have been called out of darkness into the marvelous light." The marvelous light of God. We're being cleansed from our sin, and this cleansing, the, the verb that's used here, it's a present active verb, meaning that it's ongoing. It's not a one and done, but it's a continual cleansing. John is not insinuating that once we're cleansed, we're no longer going to sin anymore. That's not the point that he's making. And this becomes more clear in the remaining verses. And so, so what is he getting at? People who walk in the light, people who walk in the light, people who understand their salvation and their cleansing from Christ, they don't hide their sin and lurk in the darkness. Rather, we confess our sin and experience the ongoing cleansing by walking in the light. And that leads me to our second question. So will we walk in darkness or will we walk in light? Will we hide our sin or will we confess it? Will we hide it or will we confess it? John is clear, if we claim to have no sin, we are deceived and we are devoid of the truth. Now, I believe most of us, probably all of us in this room, would be honest enough to admit that we sin. Um, We probably have ample evidence from even today, and we could certainly pile it in this week, that we are sinful people. And, And so the question is, in what way Might we be tempted to either hide our sin or avoid bringing our sin into the light? Now, there are some who are so deceived that they believe they have reached some level of perfection. Uh, This is a theology uh, that, that believes in the justification and then moves immediately to glorification and bypasses the whole idea of our sanctification that we're, we're in this process of putting off sin and putting on righteousness. I've heard from the mouths of false teachers. I've heard them say, I haven't sinned in years. Now, I would love to talk to their wife or their children. I would love to put them on the phone with AT&T customer service and see what happens. <laughs> it will not take them long. But there are also some who are so deceived that they believe they can do whatever they want because their sin has been dealt with by Jesus. You just live however you want to live. I'm forgiven. I'm saved. This is the crowd that Paul's writing to in Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I fall into that category. I know in that moment I shouldn't say this but I don't care. I'll be forgiven for it. Bad theology. Darkness. One popular means of deceiving ourselves is is to redefine the standards of God. To, To redefine his words. This was the original sales pitch in the garden. Did God really say Oh, do you you think that's what he meant by that? So we have theologians who are rewriting Scripture to say that nowhere does God forbid homosexuality. And I'm here before you today saying, in order to come to such a conclusion, one has to work in the dark. Because the plain light reading of Scripture is clear on this particular issue. Culture, Satan will continue to lead the charge in attempting to redefine God's words, His standards, to justify sin. But what are professing believers who justify their own immorality, sexual immorality? It's not a big deal. I know we're not married yet. Probably be married someday. And somehow they convince themselves that this is not sin. Right? We have to get to that point. I'm going to engage in sin, I have to convince myself. They have to say, I have no sin in this area of my life. We're deceived. How many times do I say something like this? Man, that person really just, they frustrate me. Or I'll say... Man, I'm just overly concerned about this situation. What I should say in that moment is I'm very sinfully angry at that person, but what do I do? I redefine it. Frustration sounds a lot better than anger to a Bible-reading person. Or, Or overly concerned sounds a lot better than anxious or worry. We redefine God's words. The other way we hide our sin or pretend we don't have sin is by playing the role of a hypocrite. We're good at this. I've said it before, Hollywood ain't got nothing on a Sunday morning crowd. The word hypocrite is is the Greek word for actor. The person who plays the part, they play the role. We hide our sin from God and others by playing the role of a person who is walking in the light when, in fact, we're consumed with darkness. Someone says, hey, how are you? And instead of being honest and admitting, man, it just had a huge fight. My spouse, another huge fight. Thinking about divorce just be the easy thing to do instead of being honest we say I'm good slap on a quick smile how about you I'm not saying we have to unload all of this on everybody (laughs) but we do have to be honest with the people that God's strategically placed in our lives what we do is we bury things instead of share things we bury instead of sherry. I'll, just, I'll, I'll coin that phrase right now. Nobody liked that. Or we come in here and we sing about the grace and the mercy of God, it's meant to change us and all the while we're carrying a sack full of sin. And instead of pausing for a moment to, to confess it, instead of making that the priority before I even come in here or when I first come in here or when that conviction comes that I should just stop singing right now and pray and and confess these things and seek forgiveness for these things, what do we do? We, We just, we bury it. We play the part, we sing the right notes, we say the right words, and we're deceiving ourselves. It's what James warns about in James chapter one. When he says, you gotta be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. He says, you're like a person who looks in the mirror and you see, oh, there's some things that need to change, but instead of of making those changes and adjustments, you ignore them. And those damning words, he says, is you're deceiving yourself. You're training yourself to think up those things aren't really that important. I don't need to focus on those things right now. I'll deal with those later. Jesus shows us the priority of of these kinds of issues in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 when he talks about the the person who comes in to offer their gift or their worship, their sacrifice to God. God. He says, you you come in here and you're you're ready to offer that, but you realize in that moment, oh, you have a problem with somebody else. There's a problem with a a brother or another saint. What does he say is the priority in that moment? Go to that person. Resolve the issue. Then come and offer your worship. We just read it from, from Psalm 51. He wants a broken spirit first. That is true worship. not a person who looks like they have it all together. He sees right through it with his light. We are all sinners. Thought I might get an amen on that. What that means is we all sin. Surprise, surprise, the people around you sin. Sin. We fear, we we worry, we think, we say hurtful things to other people. We let our eyes linger too long on images that are inappropriate. Let our minds run with imagination and fantasy. We don't love our wives as we should. We disobey our parents. We slanderously gossip about other people. Judging motives. Assuming the worst. We arrogantly fail to pray. We arrogantly fail to open up God's word to receive instruction from him. Claim, I've got it all together. We lie. We lie by trying to hide our sin rather than confess it, rather than confessing our sin and experiencing the fellowship and the the joy that is ours in Jesus. We sew together these stupid fig leaves and just try to cover it up. And God sees right through it. You're still naked under there. It's not working. It's not fooling anybody. And if you, like me, are are tired of the charade and the energy that it so often takes, look at verse 9. Contrast. You can hide, but if you confess, if you confess, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This, this is primarily a directive to confess our sins to God. This is a great Greek word. I don't share these that often, but I hope this will help make sense out of this for you. This word to confess is homo lagamen, Logos, right in the middle. What is that? The, the word to say, to speak. Homo means the same. When we're confessing, we are saying or speaking the same thing. We're saying and speaking the same thing about my sin, my action, my attitude that God says about it. To say the same thing He says. So, God, you are the standard of morality. In you is all perfection, and you say that being impatient with my family as sin. I'm here to say that I have sinned because I have been impatient with my family. I'm saying the same thing about my actions that you're saying about my actions and attitude. Please forgive me. It's confession. It's not just, I blew it again. How did you blow it again? What did you do? Say the same thing. He says, about it. When we do this, the promise is you're forgiven, and that forgiveness isn't based upon your ability to say the right words. It isn't based upon a three strikes and you're out system. I've only done it twice. I'm not at the mark yet. What is it based on according to what John says? It is based upon the faithfulness and the justice of God. First of all, this is covenant language. He is covenanted with us. And so what this means is he is obligated by his own promise and covenant to forgive us. He has obligated Himself to forgive us, and for Him to fail to forgive us would be injustice, and He cannot be unjust. I think that's amazing. His obligation is His own righteousness. Because He has said, You're mine, I'll forgive. And He forgives. But it can also be a healthy and edifying practice to confess your sins to others as well. Now, if you've sinned against a person, we understand you are obligated to go to that person. If I have been impatient with my family, it should be my obligation to go to my family and ask them to forgive me as I've also asked God to forgive me. But even, in, even when others aren't, necessarily involved it is wise to practice the discipline of confession and i'm not inviting you into some mysterious booth you know where bless me father for i've sinned and there's this weird anonymity that exists what i'm inviting you to here is the fellowship that john's talking about the real partnership and shared life that he intends for us to have and he's trying to, to to paint the picture of let me give you a few reasons why i believe confession is so important because, first of all, confession fosters humility. Confessing our our sins to other people, it keeps us from pridefully hiding from others and pretending we're something we're not. It, it, It opens the door for humility Has anyone ever met the real you? You may think, I don't know that anybody could handle that. It it fosters humility. it, It fosters encouragement. Because it gives other people the opportunity then to speak into your life. It gives people the opportunity to to encourage you with God's truth. To remind you that there's forgiveness in Christ. To point you to the gospel and the victory that is ours in Jesus. It fosters encouragement. And let me just say this. If if somebody does come to you and they, they open up... And they share the real them. We need to be ready to practice Matthew chapter 7 where it says, hey, worry about the log in your eye before you worry about the specks in other people's eyes. Because you may say, whoa, I, I didn't realize you were thinking all of those things. Or I didn't you realize you were struggling on all of those areas. I didn't realize this was the issue. let me be very clear, if somebody does come to you and they're looking for an opportunity to confess and they're looking for an opportunity to be encouraged don't you dare turn your back on them represent Christ in that moment and love them and maybe maybe you need to invite other people in to those circumstances but but don't turn your back on them. Number three It fosters admonition. You're inviting other people into your life to offer you instruction. Uh, to challenge you to be the person who can rebuke you in those moments in this way. It fosters accountability. You're establishing these ongoing relationships and partnerships and discipleships, sharing life together. It, it fosters prayer or power as, as you have this other person who is now praying for you. It's not you alone. You have a, an army of people potentially who are praying for you that the Spirit would empower you in those moments of temptation. And when we hide our sin, we forfeit all of that. You understand that, right? When we're not honest about those struggles, where is all of that going to come from? I mean, we have the Spirit, yes, you have the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit is also longing to work through other people that He's strategically placed around you. Last question, this one's really short. Will we make God a liar? This is the standalone. if we say, We say we have no sin. John says you make God a liar and that is a very damning point. How does this work? Well, if I say I don't sin, I'm saying God you're a liar because God says, oh yeah, you do. And if I say I don't sin, then I'm making God a liar because God has provided the means of salvation from our sin in Jesus. He's gone to these great lengths To provide for sinners like you and me, and if I say, "Yeah, I don't, I don't really, I don't really need that," I'm I'm, I'm pointing the finger and saying, "God, you're not truthful." So will you walk in the light or darkness? Will you hide your sin, or will you confess your sin? Will you make God a liar today? Has the blood of Jesus cleansed you from your sin? Have you confessed your sin and experienced the faithfulness of God in Him forgiving your sins? And if that sounds too good to be true, in a way it is, this is the wonder of grace. That's why we say it's so amazing. Today, you can put your faith in the substitutionary work of Christ as your advocate and as your atonement. Today, you can leave here cleansed. You may have come in here today, and the sins are scarlet crimson. You can leave today white as snow. Because if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive them. Are you walking in darkness or light today? I realize, and you probably do too, as you've been reading in 1 John, John is so matter-of-fact, it's scary. One of the things that I didn't mention earlier is John, as he's addressing these things, we understand from the tense of what he's saying in in the verbs, he's addressing habitual patterns here. These aren't one and done things. These are are habits that we've formed into our lives. We'll see that as we continue to work through the letter together. But if we remain in habitual patterns of darkness, we need to evaluate the genuineness of our faith. That's His warning. That's the instruction, and that may be you today. When the light of of God's truth is, is shined into your life, the question is, how do you respond to that? And that may be a sermon like this one. It may be your own reading. It may be the rebuke of somebody in your life. But they bring God's worth to bear on your life. Does it bring conviction to you? Do you feel the sting of that? Does it result in, in confession for you? These are signs that you're walking in the light. That your faith is genuine. Genuine. But if you're indifferent to the words of God, if you continue in your sin unconcerned when somebody brings God's word to bear on your life, it just causes you to recoil deeper into the darkness, then you should question the genuineness of your faith. Am I walking in the light? Are you tired of hiding? Are you tired of playing the role of a person who has it all together? My simple challenge that I just steal from John, who steals it from Jesus, step into the light today. Let today be the day you make confession. Let today be the day you're honest and say, listen, I'm, I'm addicted. I'm addicted to pain pills. Or I'm addicted to alcohol. I lean on it, I depend on it. I have a problem with pornography. Let today be the day where you step into the light and say, I am eaten up with bitterness. I've been so angry at this person, these people. Let today be the day you confess your adultery. Your propensity for anxiousness and worry. Step into the light. Because I I, I can assure you The darkness will kill you. And it won't get any better. You already know that. Step into the light. I remember a year or two ago, and it's a story that's been told time and time again. I don't know why this particular one resonated with me so much pastor somewhere in the Midwest been pastoring his church for 30, 35 years well beyond my own experience here and there was somebody in the auditorium that had a camera and it was the end of his service and if I understand, and my memory sometimes fails me on these things but they were celebrating him in some way And while this this celebration is happening, there were multiple men on the stage. There was a man and his wife who came out on the stage with a microphone and publicly rebuked the pastor. Because when this lady, his wife, was a teenager in that church, he'd sexually abused her for years. And I think there were other allegations that would pile on and that story that I've heard over and over and you've heard over and over I don't want to be that pastor I hear those and I fear those things I don't want to be the person that hides a whole other life that eventually just destroys me and the people that I love. I don't want to be Demas, who Paul says to Timothy, he's forsaken me, having loved this present world. I want to finish the race. I want to run with joy. I want to run unburdened. And what that means is I have to build into my life, and what that means for you is you have to build into your life confession. Honesty. When I speak harshly to people that I love, I need to confess that and not just sweep that under rug. When I view or linger too long on inappropriate things, I need to make confession of that not just act like it's no big deal. Everybody does that. God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. I need to be reminded of that. I need to be honest about my sin. And please understand this point. In light of His grace and mercy, we can be honest about our sin. When you step into the light, you're stepping into Jesus. He is the light. Open-armed with grace and mercy and compassion, He's not there to beat you over the head in judgment. He's there saying, I took the judgment for you. I drained the cup of darkness and punishment and wrath. And he's just saying, come to me. Make confession. All the while we're stepping out of the things that do.